Welcome to the Making Kids Count podcast brought to you by Kentucky Youth Advocates, where we sit down with policymakers, community leaders, and youth to discuss ideas to make Kentucky the best place to be young. Now here's your host, Terry Brooks. So April, as we all know, apparently is the month that every important policy issue has decided is their month. So Child Abuse Prevention Month, NCAA Tournament Celebration Month, and also uh, Fair Housing. So we wanted to make sure that we addressed all of these. I'm sure you're going to hear this at the end on the on the 28th. Uh, we have two guests joining us to talk about child abuse. Uh, one's named Eric Friedlander and one named Andy Bashir. So uh, we... Uh, we're happy that uh, those two state leaders are going to come to this forum and talk about child abuse. But today we want to pivot our attention to housing. Uh, the landscape that I have, and, and I am uh, the least expert of anybody you're going to hear from. Uh, I think uh, one challenge we have is some uh, variabilities of numbers. Uh, when you talk about things like uh, the percentage of families uh, worried about foreclosures, uh, uh, that number varies depending on what you're looking at. Uh, same issue around whether they're going to stay in their home. Uh, so, but, but here are two things we know. Uh, uh, those issues have been uh, exacerbated uh, far more than anyone even thought uh, in their worst scenario because of the pandemic. Uh, we all know that common sense that as families worry about economic stability, housing along with food insecurity immediately comes up. We also know that there is a disproportionate impact on families of color. Uh, that's based upon both uh, their history of having uh, an overburdened uh, cost of rent uh, as well as just the notion of lack of resources. Uh, the opportunities at hand, I think, are, are twofold, and I, I'm sure our panel will get into this. One is, uh, how can we use uh, unprecedented federal dollars to actually leverage solutions around homelessness, not as a one-off, not as a Band-Aid, but can that start a, a pathway to more sustainable solutions? The other thing that, that I think we at KYA are increasingly convinced of is that homelessness solutions have to be ground in an inner uh, policy and interdisciplinary approach. And I'll just give you a, a couple examples. There is no way you can talk about homelessness for young people and not talk about the ways in which kids are exiting from the child welfare system. So we've got to have homeless advocates and child welfare advocates working together. Uh, look at the uh, justice system. If Kentucky has the third, uh, the, third, uh, the third highest rate of children with parents incarcerated, well, we know that the way Kentucky operates, moving from being incarcerated back into society is neither seamless nor smooth. Uh, imagine the impact that particular situation has 
on kids and families and homelessness. So again, my hope is that we get the dynamic voices around housing and homelessness united with advocates around criminal justice. And, and let's look for those pivot points. So my pitch would be uh, keep paying attention to the data. But again, I think we've got to let that stabilize to get real numbers. Recognize that, uh, that this has been accelerated beyond our worst fears, especially for folks of color. Make sure that available dollars are used in a leveraged way, not a one-off fashion. And let's look for ways to unite housing and homeless policy with other arenas like child welfare, like criminal justice. So the experts are getting ready to come on so they can disagree with everything I just said. And now you'll hear the real story. Uh, Patricia Tennant, my KYA colleague, is going to facilitate that. Thanks so much for all of you being here today. Uh, Patricia, take it away. All right. Thanks, Terry. Um, and I think uh, next to Terry, I might be the second least informed on this topic. Uh, I don't feel an expert at all, uh, but I know how important it is. Um, so I've been really looking forward to this panel today uh, where we have the experts um, here to learn from, help us wrap our arms around uh, the extent of the problem of, of housing and homelessness, because we all know it is a big issue. Um, and but also to help us think through all those opportunities and solutions that um, we can all play a part in um, in lifting up and advocating for. And um, so I'm thrilled. Let me introduce our panel. Um, first, we've got Adrian Bush, who is the executive director of the Homeless and Housing Coalition of Kentucky. So she brings a statewide lens. Um, welcome, Adrian. We also have George Eklund, who is the Director of Education and Advocacy for the Coalition for the Homeless, which is based here in Louisville. Um, George, do you also look at Southern Indiana or are you focused mostly Metro Louisville? Primarily just Jefferson County. There's okay, another Jefferson coalition County. over across the river. Gotcha. Okay. And we are also thrilled to welcome the uh, Daryl Young, who is the brand new Executive Director of the Coalition Supporting Young Adults which is also based here in Louisville. Welcome, Daryl. And how many days on the job? <laughs> um, this is, I think, week seven, so. Awesome, okay. Well, we're uh, welcome and we're, we're thrilled to have you here with us today, all of you. So I think, you know, Terry uh, shared some of his framing con uh, context at the beginning. Um, and I'd love to hear from the three of you. Uh, first, just to give us, um, your lens from the perspective of, you know, the, your organizations about the, the scope of homelessness and, and the trends you're seeing um, when it comes to um, kids, families, Daryl for young adults. Um, I wonder if you could help us kind of uh, put Kentucky in context. How do we look compared to other states? Um, for Metro Louisville, how do we look compared to other cities? Give us kind of a sense of uh, what is the the urgency around um, uh, around this issue, and I'll let um, Adrian. Do you want to start and kind of give us that statewide lens? Sure, I'd be glad to. 
So thank you for having us today. Um, obviously, this is a topic incredibly important to me and our coalition. Um, and so I'm really just glad to be here. Um, prior to the pandemic, I would argue that we had an affordable housing crisis and a homelessness issue statewide. Um, it is not just an issue in our cities, it is an issue in our rural communities in the eastern part of the state, the western part of the state. In no county in Kentucky do we have a sufficient supply of affordable housing for our extremely low-income friends and neighbors, okay? And then March 2020 hits and <laughs> the whole world is just, you know, blown up. Um, as Terry said, this, on one hand, it was entirely predictable. On the other hand, um, the, the eviction issue and rent crisis um, really was, I think, eye-opening to a lot of policymakers and people who had never really thought about housing as an issue before. Kentucky has a relatively high home ownership to renter rate. And so I think a lot of us for whom um, the private market has worked just kind of took it for granted. Um, but obviously with the, um, the onset of COVID-19 and the economic impact on people in the service sector, um, there is a lot of overlap between folks who had to claim unemployment and folks who, for whom their housing was already unaffordable. Um, when we look at who these folks are, um, they a lot of them are families with children. We have been extremely concerned about mm -hmm. the impact of the rent crisis, uh, you know, uh, on kids, quite frankly. Um, so to that end, um, just it, a lot of the... It, um, census household pulse data kind of told us in real time who was at risk of homelessness. Um, and we saw that disproportionately Black Kentuckians were more affected in terms of being um, fearful of eviction or behind on their rent, um, which makes sense if we look at who is renting in Kentucky and the longstanding um, gap in home ownership um, between white Kentuckians and black Kentuckians. Um, as far as our homeless figures go, you know, we look at it, a lot of the data is not done in real time, which is a real drawback. Um, so that's some of the, that's one of the things that we're looking at, you know, post pandemic, how do we strengthen our reporting system so that we have a better idea at any given point of who is experiencing homelessness. Um, prior to the pandemic, our numbers, um, there are a couple of ways to look at it. One is obviously how many people are being served through individual programs throughout the year. Another way to do it is what is called the point in time count. Kentucky has really, um, when the point in time count was uh, implemented, um, and consistent, the methodology stayed consistent. We know that the numbers are okay, basically from about 2013 on. Um, 
back then, it was about 6,000 people were experiencing homelessness um, at a given point in time in January annually. Um, that has decreased over time um, to about 4,000. It raised up a little bit in 2019 and 2020. So the trend line is not, it wasn't going where it, we wanted it before the pandemic. Um, and now obviously we're, we're very concerned. We need to reverse, we need to um, make sure that that trend line continues downward. And Adrian, just, you touched on it, but um, maybe help me think through this more. Um, so we, we always, we hear about, you know, Seattle or like these big cities that face real affordable housing because they have the big industries and in that are pushing people out. And I think Kentucky, we think of as a, a poor state, but with low housing costs mm-hmm. is that, um, but I think, I, I think you've shared with us before, that doesn't mean that people don't have housing issues. Right. right. So just because, you know, our housing costs are low compared to San Francisco or Washington, D.C., doesn't mean that as a proportion of people's income, our housing costs are low. Um, affordable housing is defined by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development as 30 percent or below of a family's adjusted gross income. That includes either your mortgage or your rent payment plus your utilities. We know across the board, whether you're renting or owning, um, if you are extremely low income, the cost burden can be huge, upwards of 50 and 60%. We also know that um, based on census data, again, prior to the pandemic and American community survey data, um, that we were already short 77,000 units. that are affordable to our extremely low income Kentuckians. Got it. Thank you. Yes. Um, George and Daryl, I now want to kind of, um, what, what do you have in terms of that context? And uh, what are the things that you think are most urgent to share right now when it comes to um, the issue of homelessness and housing? I can go and then Daryl can, Daryl can bring in like the opportunity use piece too, because I'm, I'm really excited they got hired Daryl. So congratulations on your new position. Um, I mean, a lot of what I'm going to say echoes kind of what, what um, Adrian brought up is like we in Louisville, we have like an affordable housing crisis and it was beforehand. It's going to be after the COVID. Um, but you know, the big opportunity that we have it at our hand is that the people like more people are talking about, evictions and housing insecurity than ever have before. And I think that there is like a will to actually like see some changes. Mm -hmm. Um, Some observations that I'll just add, you know, I think the big thing with trying to track the numbers here in Louisville, the the big obstacle is that this is a, historically it's been a a hidden population, especially when you think about the different forms and the different shapes that homelessness looks like. So you have people that are sleeping out and that are street homeless, but, and that's a much more like easier number to track compared to people that are surviving. And because like we are, we are creative, resourceful and whole and we, because humans figure it out, like mm-hmm. they're going to find a way to keep their family safe. And it may be sleeping in a car. It may be, Hey, my kids are going to go stay with my sister. I'm going to sleep in a car or I'm going to sleep in the garage. Or I'm going to, I'm going to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I believe 
you know, housing, and I think we all can, we all can believe this of like housing is a foundation stone that all of our successes are built upon. Um, and, you know, you think about young people and like having a place to do homework and having a place to do, um, to have, have a place to be and to like have a poster on the wall of like your favorite NCAA basketball team. Um, you know, is, is a huge privilege that a lot of like our, our, our JSPS students don't have. And so we know like 6,000 JSPS students are homeless each year. Um, and that's a different, and that's another issue like with the federal government is we have different definitions of what youth homelessness is versus what HUD, HUD homeless is. Um, and so reconciling those differences where like, sure, like a young person is sheltered, but they're not like in a stable, like, um, uh, housing situation. Um, you know, in Louisville, we have about, before the pandemic, we had about 17,000 evictions each year. And so that's 17,000 times like a family is going through a crisis. Um, and the courts have not been incredibly responsive in the past to like meeting the needs of a, of a family. And there's never the question of like, why are you behind on rent? Like, why are you not paying your bills? And there's never the, there's never like meeting the need for my kid got sick. I had to take off work and I'm behind. My kid broke, broke their leg and it's a new medical bill that I have to pay. Um, so I think like we think about this paradigm of people in the past, especially like people just aren't paying their rent. Like they, cho they chose not to pay their money, but really like we think about our own like family dynamics and like all the stuff that just happens um, and for like low income Kentuckians that earn the least, like their margins are so razor thin that one unforeseen expense, one high electric bill puts them over the edge um, and lands them in eviction court. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's no county in Kentucky, there's no county in the country that can make minimum wage in that area and afford median rent. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a universal problem. Um you know, I think that the big opportunity coming, um, the two opportunities I would highlight this in the next four years are um, really looking at how we address evictions and how we approach evictions and like what are the responses that we can do that are going to get better results for young people and families. Mm -hmm. um, and then two, like building housing. Like we need in Louisville specifically, we need 30,000 units of of affordable housing for those that make 30% AMI. So those are our, like lowest earners. That could be like a teaching assistant with two kids that needs a, a place to stay. Um, and we need it at every level, but specifically 30% AMI, 50% AMI and 80% AMI. Okay. Uh, I, I think we'll, we'll dig into those yeah. later, George, right. you're getting ahead <laughs> on solutions. But I like how you, um, and sorry for interrupting, uh, but I like how you, uh, framed to, I, I would hope that mindset of, um, it seems like often when people are struggling with those issues, we want them to find that nonprofit or that assistance, like it's there, just go find that help, which we know is really hard. It's not easy to do. And, and much, um, uh, really what we need to be doing is more of those policy system solutions that keep people from ending up in those situations and having um, 
being there in the first place. So we're, we're going to get more focused on the solutions. Daryl, I wanted to turn to you now and kind of hear from you kind of the context for opportunity use and um, homelessness and um, what are the, the data trends that you're seeing or paying attention to um, when it comes to this population? Yes, thank you. Also want to uh, say thank you to George for the, for the shout out. Also, uh, just hearing Creative Resourceful and Hold just made my day. Uh, we just brought me back to, to, to NC3 and just made me really, really happy. Um, so again, my name is Daryl Young Jr. I am the new executive director for the Coalition Supporting Young Adults. Um, and our focus is opportunity youth. So when we talk about opportunity youth in the city or disconnected youth, we're talking about a, um, a population that is 16 to 24 who is um, disconnected from school, jobs, or service providing um, institution, and then also has a lived experience. So we talk about lived experience. We're talking about homelessness. We're talking about um, a run-in um, uh, with, with law enforcement. We're talking about uh, a concentrated suspension or referral or even um, being ex expelled from school. Um, all these issues that create barriers to access and barriers to success that we, that we know and realize. We want to conceptualize that to Louisville um, about one in 10 um, young people in this city um, would be considered opportunity youth who fall into that um, category. So one in 10, if you break that down to population, looking at about 16,000, a little over 16,000, close to 17,000 young people in the city would fall under that category. And then we compound it looking at race, um, one in four uh, will fall into that category. Um, our rate in Louisville is 12%. It's one of the highest rates in the country. Um, and then when we look at what it would cost the city, if you were just to look at the amount of services needed um, that, that those young people would, would uh, utilize needing um, about welfare um, type programs, um, the actual cost to the city in terms of lost tax revenue, um, they're not working plus the amount of services they need, um, it's about $15 billion over the next, uh, over the course of their lifetimes. So it's really, really important that we get this right. Right. And we talk about young people, um, particularly in that in that younger age, that school age. And I think George um, articulated beautifully is the fact that a lot of times what we call homelessness is not the type of homelessness that youth are experiencing. Right. We think of homelessness. We think of who is out there on the street consistently. Um, but to George's point and, you know, to, to, to the broad area that people are creative, resourceful and whole and figure it out. Um, a lot of youth experience what we call transient youth, uh, transient homelessness, excuse me, meaning so tonight I might be um, at my best friend's house and he lets me stay on the couch um, for a few days. And then um, on the weekend, I go to my grandparents' house and they give me a bed. Um, but then there might be a night or two when, you know, grandma can't take me in and my best friend, they've got stuff going on. So I have to make a way and figure it out. So I might spend um, one evening at a shelter or I might spend one evening on the street. Um, one issue that we see is that there's not a there's not a lot of resource for young people experiencing homelessness in terms of uh, most of our shelters are just just set up for anybody, which is mostly adults to to utilize. Um, so it can be quite a hard to navigate being a young person having to be with adults, right? It's a totally different dynamic. Um, so one thing we are trying to figure out is how do we um, create more beds specifically for young people. Um, I think Terry did a great job of articulating that these things don't all happen in a vacuum. All these systems are compounding the single issue. So it's not enough just to say, hey, the social worker has to look at it. 
or hey, the child welfare system has to look at it. What are all these systems that are compounding the reason that people are experiencing homelessness and that our young people are experiencing homelessness? And how can we look at that and have a holistic lens and a holistic approach um, um, to address it? And then also, we got we to gotta stop punishing poor people for being poor, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it doesn't make sense if I can't pay my rent. I'm, it's not that I don't want to. It's not that I'm just being, you know, truculent, right? It's not that, oh, I just don't want to pay you money. It's like, I don't have it. Right. I'm working two jobs, working three jobs, I'm working minimum wage. Uh, I, I just can't afford it. But to say that, OK, since you didn't pay your rent, now you owe an additional three hundred dollars or additional late fee penalty. Uh, poor people are constantly criminalized and, and penalized for being poor. And we wonder why they can't make up the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, we just expect somebody to have this magical nest egg of money. We know that, you know, most Americans, you know, no matter what, you know, um, uh, uh, class of the concern so that are not prepared um, for uh, an emergency expense right now. Most people have less than $400 in their savings account, right? So we know that nobody is ready to have these huge um, um, emergencies happen, but that are, that are not that, um, you know, um, they're more complex than we say, right? So we, we, we have to figure that out as well. Great, thank you. Yeah, and, um that holistic approach um, right there with you um, and not not um, stigmatizing people <laughs> um, and kind of almost, I don't know if victim's the right word, but, you know, blaming people um, and thinking through, I, 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 George, you mentioned it too, that I think, or maybe it was Adrian, the pandemic has kind of helped people understand the, um, the context around um, those, uh, the kind of the, the lack of safety net and the importance of it um, and how it really brought these issues to the forefront that I think many of us have been um, talking about for a long time. So um, maybe uh, let's then kind of move towards uh, what are some of those things that are making us hopeful in terms of um, community-based solutions that um, can not, not only help people um, who are facing the issues of you know, not being able to pay rent um, or um, already being homeless, but how, what are, one, are there some community-based or practice solutions, bright spots that could prevent it in the first place? Um, are there conversations happening around that, ideas that you, you would like to share? I think, I mean, you're seeing a good example of it right now in real time in terms of um, what we call emergency rental assistance. Um, Kentucky has never had enough rental assistance to begin with. Um, We are totally dependent on the federal government. Um, And nationwide, you know, only one in four families who ostensibly qualifies for public housing or a housing choice voucher actually is able to receive it because it's not viewed as an entitlement. Um, And so therefore it comes out of the discretionary side of the federal budget and it's been subject to the Budget Control Act and there just aren't enough vouchers to go around, right? So for the first time, since I have been working, um, and before that really, we have um, in the form of emergency rental assistance, I mean, that is homelessness prevention, 
theoretically, we are making people whole. We are allowing them to get a fresh start. Um, statewide, we actually have enough money for the first time to get it to, you know, everybody who needs it. Um, there are some disparities in the way the um, Treasury Department allocated funding to cities like Louisville and Lexington did not get enough um, to support the amount of need in those localities. So we're seeing that. However, in this state at least, um, I feel very confident that the state will give Louisville and Lexington an additional amount of money out of the balance of state um, pool of funding to, to try and make that more equitable. You have some other states who you have governors and mayors fighting over this. We don't have that problem here, thank goodness. So yeah, um, is emergency rental assistance perfect? No, it is not. We've all seen the stories, I'm sure, of landlords refusing to accept assistance and evicting anyway, um, or not getting the emergency rental assistance to folks in time. Part of the problem when you consistently underinvest or disinvest in systems, then when you have a huge pressing need like this, your institutions aren't necessarily equipped with the people to actually do the work. Um, so it's just taking longer, I think, to process all of these applications. Um, Kentucky Housing Corporation, who is administering it for what we call the balance of state, all of Kentucky minus Louisville and Lexington, has said that they were surprised by the demand when the fund reopened in February. And I was surprised by their surprise <laughs> based on all of the folks in my inbox, in my office, on the phone over the past year. Um, and we were very clear in advocating that this was going to be the amount of rent needed based on what people, based on the back rent owed. Mm -hmm. um, George, I know you had kind of some, you were talking about some solutions that you thought needed to be enacted. How do those um, uh, fit into, you know, are those practice or are those policy? I think those are those are more policies mm -hmm. that that are there. Um, in practice, the thing that I'm most excited about right now is the level of coordination that's taking place here in town, here in Louisville. Mm. Uh, you know, we we help manage uh, a group call every every other week, where we have probably 35 people from different parts of the community. So, they're service providers, they're policy wonks, they're city officials, they're from the courts, like, and just like reimagining how can we create a better system for evictions here? And how do we create a better, like more integrated, like response for people going through this moment? And so for the first time we have, we have four or five service providers that sit in on eviction court every day um, and sit through the 90 case docket and are able to go through and say, you know, we've paid their rent, like we can dismiss that, that case, but also go through with the fine tooth comb to say, no, like this tenant actually needs LGE assistance. Can we get them in touch with so-and-so at the community ministries? 
or we have a representative from Youth Build Louisville and Goodwill Industries that are in there just to screen out those 18 to 25 year olds that are going through eviction. Mm-hmm. And so like the, the big thing that we're working on is how can we keep this? Like, how can we keep this level of integration and how can we go out and do outreach? How can we get more information from the courts quicker um, so that we're able to like insert that intervention and avoid that eviction, avoid that eviction on the record. And e- even if somebody has to move, let's, let's do a controlled move where we can remove the trauma of your stuff getting left on the front lawn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. I like the sound of that. Um, Daryl, uh, as you've kind of entered the space, we know you're new to the, the position, but um, are there any kind of innovative community-based solutions, aside from what George mentioned, um, that uh, you're thinking about, aware of? So, so one of the things that I'm, I'm really excited about um, is that this partnership between um, Office for Youth Development, um, CSYA, um, Little Urban League, um, Youth Building, and um, Goodwill to create um, what we're calling the Louisville Youth Network um, and really trying to find a better system for young people to navigate um, their needs. Um, so you'll see that launch here shortly. Um, we've hired a team of, of network navigators and peer support specialists to help those young people who are experiencing all these issues um, and and homing and house and homelessness, housing and homelessness are one of those big issues that, that folks are trying to navigate. Where do I get rental assistance? Um, where can I go to if I'm experiencing um, you know, loss of income? Where can I go to if I am behind on rent? Um, so all those services we are working right now to index them um, and to have these network navigators connect them to those resources and be with them every step of the way so if they're not left on their own. Um, having to you know try to navigate and figure all that stuff out by themselves. So that's something we're really excited about that you're going to be seeing um, in the next few weeks. Great. Okay, we'll look for that announcement. Um, I think shifting, I'm really curious to hear from you all. I know with the American Rescue Plan that um, passed uh, recently, we were extremely excited about the child tax credit, um, you know, and knowing that that's going to have a big impact on um, lifting children out of poverty. Um, And I'm curious to hear from you, what were you all excited about from a homeless and housing perspective? And what are kind of um, next steps that uh, you uh, will be advocating for in future plans coming from the federal? Um, Hey, if you don't mind, I will go first because I am so excited. (laughs) And I... Those of you who know me know I'm not really super optimistic, pretty you realistic. Have to, you have to be kind of optimistic to be an advocate, Adrian. Yes, I, I feel like I practice cautious optimism, but also grounded in reality. Um, that said, the American Rescue Plan Act has an incredible amount of um, policy and funding to back up that policy that can address the housing continuum. Um, In Kentucky, we will have, again, rental assistance, um, this time broader than what is currently being used. Um, And we'll have about 235 million of it that can carry us to um, at least 2024, 2025. 
One of the things I like about the American Rescue Plan is the longer time frame to allow communities and states to really think strategically, wisely, judiciously about how do we use this money to really transform what housing looks like in Kentucky moving forward. Um, the other piece of it is that it it addresses the need of people in delinquency um, who are behind on their mortgages. Mm. With the K-shaped recovery, you know, we have been relentlessly, persistently focused on the rental issue over the past year because the vast majority of folks, that's that's how their housing was impacted. But the longer that this goes on, obviously, you know, we are st- starting to see and see the warning signs of a potential um, foreclosure crisis, which we definitely don't want. Um, but there is money specifically for that. And then there's also money um, for homeless assistance, um, to both help people in the short term for sure, but you know another set of emergency rental um, housing choice vouchers to prevent homelessness, um, as well as just giving the funding um, for states and cities to think about what are the systems that we need in place, and here's how we're going to fund them, so that you know whether we think about purchasing motels um, or or other things that we just haven't had the money or the bandwidth to do. Just for comparison's sake, um, in the balance of state, there's a federal program called the Emergency Solutions Grant Program that is nationwide. But in the balance of state, based on formula funding, Kentucky usually gets about $2.5 million each year to address sheltering, diversion, um, a little bit of rental assistance for 118 counties, which sounds like a lot. (laughs) But those of you who look at the state budget and know that it's 10 to 12 billion, like it's a drop in the bucket. It's not nearly enough to address the need. Um, In contrast, the American Rescue Plan will bring about 55 million to the balance of state in Kentucky. Um, and we're one of the smaller states, right? So anyway, I feel like we have a golden opportunity to really transform the living situations of Kentuckians over the next few years. Yeah, I, I share I share Adrian's excitement. I mean, it's been um, between all of the assistance packages, like we've seen like new, dollars that we've never seen before here locally in Louisville. Um, and it's given us some ability to like make capital investments in like shelter that needs updates. Um, it's given us more vouchers. It's given us the ability to take our family waiting list like to zero because there are new dollars and new prior- prioritization to put people into public housing um, here locally. Um, you know, and going forward, I think the big opportunity with if there is an infrastructure bill that passes, like having like a huge dedication to like housing. Um, and just, I, I would be incredibly in favor of building as much housing as possible here locally. Um, primarily, primarily focusing on infill projects, 
um, but targeting it towards that 30, that, that 30% AMI range. Um, and for those of you who aren't developers, like it's really hard to make projects work um, because our rent is on average too low in Kentucky. And to finance things, you have to have like the full spectrum in like larger complexes. But if you're really interested in developing, we can set up a call and talk about that. Um, but it's, I think we need to target like infrastructure dollars, not only to roads and, and broadband, but it need, we need to be thinking about how can we house our workforce here in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. I think for me, um, I think as everybody said, it's exciting to, to, to have this amount of money, right? Um, to be flowing through the city right now. Um, I guess to Adrian's point, I think for me, it's how do we make sure we're strategizing it right? So we're not just blinded by the dollar signs in our eyes, but really figure out how to make it work. Um, really consider those systems that we know are compounding and complicating this problem. How do we create strategies, solutions that addresses all of those things, right? Because um, we know that these things are happening in a vacuum. So we know we're talking about you know, housing and homelessness, we can't just focus on housing and homelessness. We have to look at all the issues that lead people to housing and homelessness mm -hmm. and what are their roles in that um, so that we're not just seeing this endless funnel keep on going over and over and over in this endless pipeline. So how do we really address those issues? And then how do we get the people most affected in positions of influence and power, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm always going to be an advocate for youth voice. I'm actually utilizing youth for not just props, right? or exploitation, right? So a lot of times when we have dollars um, and we want to involve the people that we're, that we're, that we're supposed to be helping, it's usually um, the only way we're utilizing them is to tell the worst stories about them, right? Mm. And that's the only reason why they're at the table is for us to try to create some kind of, you know, um, sad narrative for funders so that we can be, you know, funded for our programs, right? But never really, um, you know, getting their perspective, getting their insight into how the strategy can, can, can work and be successful. And then we wonder why we're having such a hard time getting traction in the communities we're trying to serve, right? So how do we actually create systems that honor the voice of the people who've experienced homelessness every single day? How do we get the, the voice in to be implemented into policy, uh, right? For young people who are bouncing from bed to bed to bed. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, who might have to end up in a home that has a UK poster on it. How terrible is that? Right? I'm sorry. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't. <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a proud U of L alum, uh, go back to George's reference yesterday about a poster of their favorite NAAC, NCAA team, right? But I think it's really important and vital that we're actually putting those, those folks at the table with us. Yeah. Amen. Yes. Um, well, I kind of skipped over, we went, we talked local and then we talked federal, but um Really, I uh, don't want to be remiss and leave out state policy. Um, we just finished the legislative session. Um, and I know, um, Adrian, I've seen there's a, a, an affordable housing caucus now. Um, and uh, I think a bipartisan bill for affordable housing tax credit. Um, I'm just kind of curious to hear, you know, what are, what are those uh, state policy priorities that we should be paying attention to. What's your take on, you know, are there state policies that we need in place to help maximize the federal um, investment coming down? Um, give us kind of a landscape there. Sure. Um, I think I was listening to comment on now, Kentucky Tonight, a few weeks ago, and Terry was one of the panelists, and Renee Shaw had asked 
the panelists to provide some descriptors for this session. And I think he said something about pervasive perplexity. Um, and double P, yes. 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 And I think we definitely saw that from our perspective in this session. On one hand, we saw some movement on bills that we had championed in years past that, you know, died the COVID death last year. Um, one was kind of nibbling around the edges of like supporting youth experiencing homelessness. And that was allowing them mental access okay. to mental health services from qualified mental health professionals. And that's a great bill and it is common sense and it, it went through no problem this session. Um, at the same time, yes, we had a tremendous number of co-sponsors to help increase the housing supply by creating a state affordable housing credit that never got out of the committee on committees. Um, and it, then we also saw other pieces of legislation, um, you know, back to the first part of this conversation where we talked about how for a lot of Kentuckians, I think the narrative is shifting on who needs housing assistance, who has been impacted by the pandemic. Um, and there's an understanding there among a lot of Kentuckians that it maybe didn't have it before um, around what it means to be poor in this state. But in some of the General Assembly movements and legislation, you know, we saw a bill that would criminalize so-called intentional damages to residential rental property. And this was a bill that even the, um, the local mandate statement, it says like in talking to property managers, this bill is unnecessary. Hmm. Um, and yet it passed anyway. And then we also saw a couple of bills that luckily did not receive much movement that would prohibit the governor from ever doing anything about an eviction moratorium or rent control or anything um, in the in a state of emergency. And I would argue that having the state eviction moratorium or order um, and the CDC's order literally saved Kentucky lives mm. over the past year. There have been researchers who are way smarter than I am who have actually isolated, you know, um, the existence of eviction moratoria and tied it back to, you know, COVID cases and COVID deaths. So hmm. um, anyway, moving ahead, I mean, we're going to continue to work. I would not... Um, you know, with the American Rescue Plan Act, there is some question about whether it can be, you know, tax credits will impact the amount of dollars that Kentucky gets. So I would never want that tied to the American Rescue Plan Act. But, um, and I also, I think addressing the housing issue requires both making sure that people have the rent assistance that they need in forms of rent subsidy in, the, in terms of vouchers, but also, yes, without giving unlimited um, handouts to, you know, private developers, we do need to think about how do we increase 
the supply of affordable homes in Kentucky using the American Rescue Plan Act. Mm -hmm. Thank you. George, Daryl, anything on the state policy front? Yeah, that you'd like to add? I'll, I'll see that to George. Yeah, I, I have an ongoing wish list of things. Um, I mean, I agree with everything Adrian always says. Um, things that I think would be really great. Um, you know, I would love us to really rewrite how we handle evictions and the process of evictions. Mm. Uh, so I would love us to be like Indiana. Like in Indiana, on the day that you lose your home, the only thing that happens is that the lock gets changed. And the tenant the, and the landlord have one week to schedule a time where the tenant can come and move their stuff out. Here in mm. Kentucky, the sheriff oversees a bunch of guys that come in and take your stuff and it puts it on the curb. And so just a way that we can re remove that trauma of like a kid getting off the bus and saying like, well, there's my stuff and um, the embarrassment that goes along with that. Mm. Um, you know, Indiana, I think that would be great. I would love us to really look at landlord-tenant law. Um, we we are operating on law that, and it's only in Louisville, Lexington, and some of Northern Kentucky, uh, is EARLTA, which is from the 70s. Um, it's out of date. It doesn't um, accommodate the modern like age of technology and communication and really leveling the playing field of the power dynamics that are play, at play between landlords and home renters. Um, those are some of my things. Also a way that we can uh, expunge evictions off of somebody's record or sealing it. How to do that, I don't know. We, we can let LRC write, write those bills, but those are things that I would love to see happen. Hmm. Daryl, anything to add on this state policy front? I know this is a... Uh, Something you're think, thinking about a whole lot more. <laughs> no, I think I, I think um, Adrian and George covered it beautifully. Great, um, Patricia. Amy had asked in the, um, and I know we're running really short on time, so I'll make this quick. Yeah. Um, she had asked about eviction processes and like mm -hmm. the difference um, with the the different orders and stuff. Um, you know, I try to not refer to them as moratoria because evictions continue. The orders are specific to non-payment of rent. And that is a huge issue in that you have um, it, folks being evicted for lease violations, um, that maybe the landlord didn't have a problem with some behavior before, but now it's become evictable um, or the lease has, it, you know, run its course, the landlord decides not to renew it, then you're subject to eviction. Um, the one good thing about the current extension that goes through June 30th is that the Biden administration did, even though the language is the same, they have implemented um, kind of an enforcement mechanism through the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Department of Justice, because that was the other thing. Like theoretically, all these orders were in place, but we know that the rule of law is only as good as its enforcement mechanism. Mm -hmm. So hope that answered your question, Amy. Thank you. And I'm sure she can follow up with you too um, on those details. Um, so before we wrap up, I think um, the last question I wanted to ask you all, um, so we've got a group of advocates here um, who join us every Wednesday. 
um, with the point of uh, uh, what's your, how, they're here because they want to learn more, but they also want to engage and be involved. So do you have a call to action for them? What's um, give them kind of a to-do list if, if they want to um, help um, advocate on um, behalf of Kentuckians, you know, when it comes to homelessness and housing, what's the best thing they should be doing right now? So I think at this point, the, um, the best thing you could possibly do is a pretty low risk activity. And that is simply to sign on to the housed campaign that has been put forward by the National Low Income Housing Coalition that really gets to that question of how do we come out of this pandemic better and stronger? Um, and how do we center race equity in our housing policies? How do we make sure that we are really getting, um, that our people who are extremely low income, that we're getting housing supports to the people who need it the most, as opposed to the people who can have the best internet connection. Um, so I'm gonna post that link in the chat. Awesome. And I'm sure, yeah, we'll send that with a follow-up email. Um, Daryl? I would just, you know, encourage folks to learn more about the coalition and the work we're doing and to learn more about Opportunity Youth. I'm going to drop our link, uh, csyalouisville.org, into the chat, and hopefully you guys will follow up with us. Um, I would, two, two asks. One is that uh, Councilwoman Chambers Armstrong in Louisville has proposed a uh, right to counsel ordinance for um people with a child in the home and making under 125% of poverty. Um, this would give attorneys to home renters that are going through eviction. Um, you can send your, if you live in Louisville, you can send your council person an email using that link that I just dropped in the chat. Um, also, if you're interested in doing this in your own locality, like reach out and I can get you their bill language and you can, you can take it to them. The other thing is, you know, I would push government and we've kind of talked around it, but like push government and all these systems that we're building to require as least amount of paperwork and verification as possible. Um, you know, because of the pandemic, it gives us a new license to reimagine how people should apply for assistance and who qualifies for assistance. So like, think about like, what is what is essentially required and what is just uh, dressings to make us feel more comfortable about giving out assistance to people. Mm -hmm. um, so I would, um, I would just ask your localities to do that and like the state to do that. Like, let's remove the barriers from people getting actual help. Yeah, it turns out, you know, when we design systems like SNAP and KTAP and um, KCHIP, when we make it really hard for poor people to get assistance, we make it hard for everybody. Like if that's one lesson that we have, haven't taken away from the pandemic, then I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> well said, okay. Well, thank you all. Um, I know I learned a ton today. I have, know I have lots more to learn, um, but really appreciate you um, sharing with us. And I'm gonna uh, now turn it over to Alicia to close this out. Patricia. Um, and I just want to say thank you to our panelists as well. Um, I think you guys not only brought attention to a really important issue and talked a lot about what the issue is, but also gave us some ideas for how everyone can be involved in the solution, which is really great. Um, 
So Adrian, George, and Daryl, thank you for being here today and for presenting to our group. Um, and we also want to thank Aetna Better Health of Kentucky for their support of today's Advocate Virtual Forum. Um, so as always, we want to do a little look ahead to the next couple weeks for those of you who want to join us. Um, so next week, we're going to be discussing the behavioral health landscape for Kentucky's kids and their families. Um, so that's going to include some new Louisville-based qualitative research um, about barriers to kids receiving high-quality care and then potential solutions to those barriers. Um, and we're also going to hear from statewide partners about the effects of the past year and how they have navigated serving kids and their families during the pandemic. Um, so our panelists are going to include State Senator Max Wise, um, Dewey Rains, who is the Behavioral Health Director with the Cumberland Family Medical Centers, and Maria Gurin, who is a Public Protection Coordinator with the Louisville Metro Criminal Justice Commission. Um, and then the following week, as Terry mentioned, as we near the end of Child Abuse Prevention Month, we're going to be joined by Governor Andy Bashir and the Cabinet for Health and Family Services Secretary, um, Anna Friedlander, and they're going to be discussing how our Commonwealth can better support kids and families. Um, as always, we're going to be following up with an email um, after today's forum, and that's going to include the recording of today's forum, along with all the resources that were discussed today, um, and a link to sign up for next week's forum if you guys want to join us. So thanks again for joining, and I hope everyone has a great rest of their day. Thank you for listening to the Making Kids Count podcast with Terry Brooks. For more information and to listen to more episodes, visit kyyouth.org slash podcast. Kentucky Youth Advocates is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who doesn't accept government money so that we can remain truly independent. To support this podcast and our mission as the independent voice for Kentucky kids, please consider making a gift at kyyouth.org slash donate.